Welcome to the podcast of data and analytic in business. We will learn from the leading industry experts using data and analytics to solve the problems and create values in practice. We will also learn where the industry is heading to and how data and analytics will shape the industry in the future. Most importantly, how they are preparing their business for digital transformation and disruption in the future. I'm your host, Jason Tan, and thank you for listening. Tim and I started the discussion about his role as a mentor for Queensland AI Labs and also Queensland AI Hub. We talk a lot about the potential coming out from this AI incubator and how they could potentially play a role in the Australian IT economy. More than that, we talk about how the corporation and the government could potentially benefit from all of this AI incubator. Moving on to his role as a head of automation at Suncorp, Phil share with us various examples of the intelligent automation that could have applied and also been applied for the insurance industry. He spoke about the importance of having the human and machine approach where the machine and the AI doing all the heavy lifting to do all the groundworks so that human it make it easy and make, allow the human to, to make the decision. This is especially important when we have a catastrophic event and claim situation where there is a large volume of the claims coming true and the insurers have to process that as quick as possible and subsequently allowing the insurer to help the customer as quick as possible. And this is important to align it back to the philosophy of Tim and his work in helping the customer, i.e. customer-centric approach. And this customer-centric approach where he often thinks and try to put the customer as the center of the focus and the starting point so that he and the insurers like Suncom and his team will be able to help the customer whenever and wherever he can. Tim also shared with us about the use of the automation and how it is slightly different and the challenges that could potentially be faced in the commercial insurance portfolio as opposed to the GI portfolio. Tim also go deeper into this whole topic about the how to combine the analytic automation and AI as the very next step to further refine and improve the business process at the organization. There are numbers of the important parts that you want to take away from this episode. Number one being the customer-centric philosophy and approach that Tim takes when it comes to the automation, analytic, and AI. And number two which is the human and the machine approach where the machine could do all the heavy lifting and we could still have the human making some of the decision, but also having the machine to speed up the entire process. If you have any question for me and Tim, please feel free to send us an email or connect to Tim on his LinkedIn. If you enjoyed this episode of how Tim talked about the automation in the insurance and want to hear more of these sort of use cases and how analytic is used in organizations around the world, make sure you subscribe to the Analytic Show podcast. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, Tim. Thank you so much for coming on to the Analytic Show podcast. Super, super excited to have you here today. Thanks, Jason. It's great to be here. Pressure is my, I can tell you, especially I've been wanting to talk to you about this for a long time. Now, let's start light a little bit. I know you have been involved with a couple of uh, AI groups in Queensland. I think some of them are Queensland AI Labs and, uh, and a few other. So what do you see the role of this type of organization? And I believe your role over there is mental. Is that correct? It is. And for some of the other groups, it's just been, you know, sort of providing insights into what the corporates are looking for, so to speak. And how do you think that this type of organization are going to play, especially for the Queensland market, for the ICT industry, and also perhaps for the corporate as well? Yeah, look, I think the role of the incubator in technology has really come a long way in Australia. And I think the sort of AI labs concept is no different to the fish burners or the, the sort of tech startup incubators. And I think they're important because they can really drive some independent thinking, the way that they can bring people together to, to think differently about problems. But I think there's also real benefits to the community. I think everybody thinks about how can they get the next biggest thing. But I think particularly with AI, there's a lot of collaboration going on around just community issues, sustainability and that sort of thing. And I think there's a fantastic sort of neutral place that these labs can play. Certainly, and I think one of the benefits, and in fact, is one of the key reasons of your involvement in supporting them is also about helping to develop the Australian IT economy. Would you share with us a little bit more about this one? Yeah, look, I guess I'm probably not on my own, but I always liken it to how Australian medical technology, so research, et cetera, has really been at the forefront it's a sort of thing that, that it doesn't worry about geography and it doesn't worry about time zones. And we've proven that we can be incredibly successful in medical research. And I think AI has the same place and has the same potential. We've got some top-notch unis. We've got some very talented people. I think it is about how potentially governments, but also these the sort of incubators how we can help them to really drive it because it could be a big point of difference for Australia into the future. Exactly. I think that will help also to create a different type of the economy for the younger generation to come, right? Now, so far, the incubator seems to have some challenges in taking off, and I believe you you touch on some of the role that perhaps the government can play. But other things that, like you were saying, that what the corporate are looking for and how to help them to certain, how to sell to the corporate, especially if they have a really solid product. So what would be your advice to them in reaching out to the corporate to adopt their product? Look, I think with the tech startups as well, at the heart of it, it's just software and technology. Key is always, and this is inside and outside of business, the key, the real challenge is finding the right problems to solve. I think too often, it's tempting to genericise it so you can try and be all things to all people. But if you look at the really successful sort of startups in this area, they find a big problem and they work out a pattern to solve it and then they're actually selling the solution to a problem. And that, I think, is really what people are looking for in corporates and elsewhere is that somebody can solve a problem 
that can be taken straight off the shelf and implemented rather than hiring labour to solve a problem that you've got. And I think it's worthwhile to dwell into that a little bit, especially when you say that it's super important to highlight a niche. And a lot of startup, like you were saying, that has proven to be, it's better off to be super niche in the early days because it's much easier for people to recognize what they are doing and it will probably be easier to sell to the corporate rather than trying to appeal to everyone and everyone. And I want to talk a little bit, move into a little bit more about your current role as the uh, head of automation at Suncorp. What are your major area of focus? Yeah, so we came together in June as a group capability pulled together from across the small sort of pockets of automation capability across the group and formed up under the CIO and the technology arm of the company because it used to be distributed throughout businesses. And, I mean, the focus has always been on on process and decision-making. Like most white-collar organisations, it's not just financial services. You know, really customer experience comes down to delivering what you promised to the quality you promised and doing it fast. And we saw automation as an ability to speed up decisions and processes to augment employee decision-making, reduce errors, and actually get the best outcome to the customer fastest. So really about, about removing the friction in processes and decisions, but also really, and you'll hear me say it a bit, is really about augmenting decision-making as well. Has that been a challenge itself in terms of pulling all those different teams together to come into a single team to do all this automation? Look, I think it was all sort of changes. It has its challenges, but it's been pretty seamless. So I've got to admit the team pulled together really well and we've, we've sort of formed up the core sort of capabilities, partnered up with our data science team internally and there's massive demand for both sort of AI-enabled decision-making and process automation in the group. So the challenge has been more ensuring that we stood up and, and were operating well before chewing through what's quite a large demand in the business. Right. Now, I want to go into a little bit more detail, if that's okay, because you mentioned about partnering with the data science team and then your team is the automation I think to some extent, a lot of time people sort of confuse or people tend to think that AI would cover everything. Now, I suppose if within the internal team and the business come to you or come to the data science team and say, hey, we want AI. So how would you then go and advise them to say, what are the things that it would be the correlation between the two and what is not really quite covered in terms of that whole AI expectation yet then? Yeah, I mean, I'm a bit of a pedant, I think. If someone, and it happens, people come and say, I want more AI in my business, and I go, don't we all, but what's the business problem you're trying to solve, right? Because you can have AI in your business, but unless it's solving a problem for your customers or for your staff, then what's the point? And I think that's where we got to is we tend to use the term of intelligent automation to span that divide between AI that is, you know, if you look at it, insights AI that isn't leading to action, it's just driving insights versus AI that helps to to drive decision-making. 
because in reality, software does it all the time. As processes are scattered with small decisions, many of which don't need any machine learning and artificial intelligence. They're just very logical. But there's always the decisions that need inference and need insights. And it's how you combine the two to get the right outcome because it's not always the right answer to use AI to completely make a decision. It's often the right answer to use AI to to synthesise and aggregate and make sense of large volumes of data and then hand it off to a human who then does their job much, much better and faster because that synthesis and aggregation has happened. So, yeah, it's quite tricky, which is why I go back to focus on the business problem you're trying to solve and work out what the fit for the technology is. Absolutely. I really like that human and the machine approach. Now, before we go into much detail, I want to provide a little bit context to the listener about the industry and the company that you work for, Suncorp. So for those who are in Australia, they would pretty pretty much know who Suncorp is, what Suncorp does. But we have about 40% of the listener coming from overseas. Do you want to spend a minute or two just to quickly talk about what Suncorp does and what industry that you is Suncorp and you are in? Yeah. Yeah, so we're a financial services provider in Australia and New Zealand. Really, we've got a New Zealand insurance business and life business. We've got a large Australian insurance business and we've got a banking business. And that's the core of what we do, limited to Australia, New Zealand, but in the Australian market, you know, one of the big two or three, and really focused, I guess, on how we deliver to those three core businesses fundamentally. Yeah, so the banking is probably also the feed of the largest bank in Australia. Uh, likewise, uh, that is the numbers of channel and the brand in the life insurance as well. Now, coming back to the intelligent automation at Suncorp, especially in the area of the process and decision automation, what are the main use cases that are being automated across Suncorp Group? So we've taken a very sort of customer-centric or tried to take a very customer-centric approach to this. I think in the early days, it was easy to say, oh, here's an opportunity to reduce costs. As I was saying before, like most processes, they're all in the service of the customer. So when you look at the insurance business, if, if we take that as an example, but equally for the bank, a lot of what we're trying to do is to reduce the variance and the delays in your big mainstream processes. So things like can we partner with the digital teams to make claims lodgement more seamless? Can we use a process automation and AI to make some of those decisions early in a claim, which particularly in time of of weather events can become a bottleneck? So they're the big sort of pieces. But then you get the, the sort of middle and back office processes that are sometimes forgotten, but variants and errors in those processes can drive a massive degradation in the customer experience end-to-end. So we've also focused on looking for those processes that have a high risk of of failure and making them more robust. I think speaking of the customer-centric and one of the things that I personally have the experience is that claim process, the zero-touch claim process. So just about three weeks ago, my brother-in-law, he he had an accident. And as I was helping him to do the claim process as we walked through and submitting all those information, we were surprised and blown away that how the decision was made. 
obviously there is still pending more information to be filed, to be given. But by the end of that process of submitting the claim online, a preliminary decision has been reached to say who was at fault and who was not at fault, who would have to pay the excess and all. And uh, my brother-in-law asked me, how did they figure that out? <laughs> and it took me a while I, to guess. I, I sort of like guessing perhaps could be the numbers of the vehicle are involved and also the angle that how the collision was happening. And that is how they come to the, the whole automation and also using the AI thing. I thought that was fascinating. How long has this been rolled out now? And that whole process, I just want to highlight, it took probably less than 10 minutes in submitting the claim and getting a result. Yeah. Yeah. Ironically, the zero touch claims piece was done a number of years ago. At that stage, it was based largely on IBM's Watson, but it was kind of a prototype for how we can get better. And this all comes down to availability of data, as you say. The only way you can tell is by getting enough information to make a decision. I think that's the exciting part about this is the ability to aggregate more information and being able to, as you say, go to external data sources or internal data sources to get the insight and to orientate yourself to the the automation to making the right decision. Like there's a massive opportunity and it's just going to continue to grow as more external data comes online as particularly the field of computer vision gets evolves, like massive opportunity for the insurance industry in computer vision, a lot of it being let out of the US and all of that will lead to increasingly streamlined processing in the claims world but also in sort of insurance sales and service, being able to match the customer needs to a product, you know, without significant intervention by contact centres. Can you give us an example about that potential of using the computer vision that perhaps has been already tested out in the state and which we could apply here using that in the insurance industry, especially processing the claims? Yeah, look, any sort of damage assessment. There are insurers in the US who employ firms to fly drones over damaged roofs and get their first assessment of the severity of the damage of the roof through interpretation of the video the drone takes. The more obvious one is small motor damage assessment based on the photos that are sent in. So computer vision, I think, is is the frontier that has the most promise. But even when you get to look at, and this is a long shot, but, you know, you get to look at the start of some of the medical imaging diagnostics and stuff like that. When you look at the personal injury business, being able to employ some of that to to improve decision-making and diagnostics by your medical professionals. It's all possible. It's just not quite as evolved, I think, as potentially vendors might tell you, but it's definitely one of the things that's going to revolutionise the industry. And in the event of the catastrophic event, like, for example, the hailstorm or the massive flood event, I think it is also important to be able to process a lot of those claims in a super efficient and high volume way as fast as possible because as people are stressing, the last thing that they want to hear about is it takes days or weeks to have their claim processed. So I can definitely see how a lot of those things will come into play, especially the catastrophic event. Has any of those things be applied in the 
example where massive numbers of claim volume in sort of a catastrophic event type of claim? Yes, certainly in the motor space, it absolutely takes that lower level of claim severity out and paths it straight through in some of the other automation pieces where we've removed bottlenecks. It might not look astronomical when you're sitting in BAU, but when your claim volume goes up 100-fold or 300-fold, the lack of that bottleneck actually makes the customer experience significantly better because it might be a two-day delay when you're sitting outside of an event. That might be a three-week delay once you get inundated. That's why we're taking this, this customer journey approach is is fundamental regardless of whether it's just very standard automation or whether it's AI enabled. It is walking the customer's journey and saying, where are the problems that the customer experiences and how can we alleviate those? And now that we are in the bushfire and the storm season, so uh, those things will become handy when we have one of those events again. Now, more specifically to the recent headline about Suncorp, the automation kickoff due to the pandemic. Would you share with us some of those behind the scenes happening? Yeah, look, it goes without saying the pandemic, massive impact on, on everybody, on the citizens of the world, but also on companies. And finding ways in an environment where we were dealing with lockdowns and a move to work from home and like all companies had to, finding ways to maintain customer service was just the, that was the baseline kind of need. How do we ensure the impact on customers is less while we orientate ourselves to work from home, having our contact centres move home, fairly significant undertaking, but also understanding that the pandemic itself had some very fast-acting impacts on our customers, both banking and insurance. When thousands and thousands of people lose their jobs or those that are vulnerable are even more vulnerable, a core theme of, of what we looked at is, is how do we support vulnerable customers? There was a, a mass amount of work to say how do we ensure that vulnerable customers are protected, but also how do we build our resilience? There were three or four really good examples out of those early days of the pandemic that everybody's kind of said, why didn't we do this year or years ago? But as we all found, the operational imperative of the circumstances around the pandemic sharpened the mind and we did some things very, very quickly, many of them not to do with automation, you know, solved problems that we've always had. We just didn't have the imperative to do it. Enabling web chat is a really good example. We were having a meeting today and it was brought up as an example. We'd sort of not enabled web chat because there wasn't a big enough need from our customers and all of a sudden there was and it was enabled in three days, you know. So some of that stuff, particularly going back to the vulnerable customers, you know, making sure we were able to service them better, you know, that was a really key outcome of the early days. Would you want to share some of those three or four examples apart from the servicing the vulnerable customer? Yeah, so look, there were things where we had probably allowed the allocation of work. It's a really simple example. So the categorisation and allocation of work, it sat on the back burner. It was okay that it took half a day to get the right work to the right people, but when you had significantly less people available to do the work, getting that work prioritised, getting it really understood and then allocated to the right skill set became really, really important. So we deployed automation to do work allocation which we'd never bothered with before, 
But once it was in, it's in and it's operating and getting an understanding of the more fine-grained understanding of what is the work that needs to be done, again, was largely due to vulnerable customers, but also, you know, machine learning to understand what is the what is the classification of a particular piece of work rather than just having it in a queue. There's some good examples some of the outbound, automated outbound communication with customers because there's a massive amount of uncertainty. Many customers they'd sit on the IVR in a queue because the queues were long. They could only absorb so much information. So alerting customers and communicating with them better in the outbound fashion was also another thing that I think was well received by customers because it allowed them to be informed because they acknowledged that everybody was struggling to just sort through what this all mean. But, you know, there's some, some examples. Right. I think one of the things that I pick up from this news headline is that uh, how it was executed so quickly in such a short period of time. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that in that execution and what were the major challenges, especially when you were facing all your staff were working from home, distributed in at least three cities from the corporate side itself, let alone about the call center is in even multiple cities. What were the major challenges and how did that happen in such a quick, short time? I mean, we were fortunate in that we had always enabled flexible work. So we, we always had a proportion of our team, like myself, I'd work from home one day a week. And we had some pretty good technology in place. It was just making sure that technology could scale because the difference between 20% of the workforce working from home on any particular day and 99%, there was some technical challenges, not my problem, fortunately for me. But the concept that was built up and my team participated in was this concept that we ended up calling Tiger Teams, but the approach is to just bring the right people together to solve our particular problem, focus on that problem, be customer-obsessed, as Catherine Carmody, who runs our, our digital distribution, would say, and, and being very agile. The big thing was stripping away the bureaucracy, really empowering the team to solve the problem and then get on and deliver the solution. They were some of the critical things. You know, we were fortunate in my automation team's Automation is a very agile thing already, so we were very well positioned for it, but it was more around them pivoting to the to the problems as they needed solving and just chewing through them as fast as possible. But the concept of, you know, these business-enabled Tiger teams were a real, you know, was a real thing to emerge for us out of the pandemic. Would you say that the training and the upskilling was part of what these Tiger team also had to carry out? Uh, to ensure that everyone was able to shift from that uh, 100% working from home? Again, it, it was more around kind of embracing the tenets of Agile, I think, more around getting the rituals in place without overburdening the team, but also acknowledging that, you know, you might not be able to get the right answer, but you would get an answer that was good enough. I think overall, though, the the sort of change in, in roles and the, the sort of emerging, we've got roles in the company that we didn't have five years ago and we'll probably have different roles in five years' time. But it is about how we help people to kind of grow from the roles they're doing today and into the roles that emerge. 
you know, probably, I don't know, half of my overall team kind of rebadged business and technology people who have shown a, a willingness and an aptitude for automation. And today they, they may be an automation process analyst, but they might have just been a continuous improvement person or they might have been a full stack developer somewhere else, but now they're, they're a full-blown sort of automation developer. So what are some of the benefits that you are getting now from that shift? Should we also highlight about the number of the new advanced level job creation, like some of those that never exist five years ago? Yeah, and look, I think often it's overthought or over-engineered. I always say that you can pick the roles, but I think it's the way of thinking as well. Agile is probably a in technology circles, you know, it's probably an overused word, but it is about an understanding that, that increasingly the world is becoming more modular, right? And so it's about how to think from the business point of view is, is what's the problem I'm trying to solve? And then there may be three or four things that need to be developed and delivered and plugged together to solve your problem and doing that in an iterative way. One of the biggest issues is, is the concept of minimum viable product, but everybody wants the perfect product, not the minimum viable product. So iterating through things where the model fits. And I think that's a cultural and mindset piece that a lot of businesses need to work up the muscle on. Absolutely. Now, I know we have been talking a lot about the insurers and a lot of those are in the personal line. And in my view, that is that uh, the GI portfolio or the personal line is actually a lot more structured. And because of that, it is a bit more commoditized. Yeah. What that basically means is it is so much easier to automate as well. Whereas in the CI, which is the commercial insurance, we still need a lot of the individual assessment and judgment. Now, given of your past experience in the CI space, would you say that it would be a bit more challenging applying whatever all the works that you have been doing from PI into the CI space and the CI portfolio then? Yeah, I think the commercial insurance portfolio, by the nature of what it insures, is more complex. Insuring a motor vehicle versus insuring an entire fleet on behalf of a corporation, significantly different way of thinking. And I guess the way we've been approaching it is to, to look at where can you digitise? So not just digital, but, you know, where can you convert inbound PDFs into actual structured data? Or better still, where can you convert, you know, some of our intermediated partners onto just sending us a spreadsheet or integrating directly with us, but also simplifying it. When you're dealing with complexity in that product set, making sure that you can simplify the process and break it down and get it consistent is absolutely key. And the third piece is some of these decisions are quite complex and we might not be at a stage where we can take a decision on whether to insure Westfield Shopping Town and how to insure it. Like there's, I don't think there's a computer system on earth that could come up with that answer. But what we can do is we can help the people involved, the underwriters, you can give them better, this is where I talk about synthesisation of information. I'm a big fan of a model that a US Lieutenant Colonel came up with named Boyd, which is called the Boyd cycle, but it's also called the OODA loop, which is 
observe, orientate, decide and act is the model. It was for actually for fighter pilots in the Korean War. But I often overlay it around what we're doing here is we have technical capabilities that can observe and absorb and capture documentation and data and make sense of it in order to orientate it to the problem you're trying to solve and then augment the decision you're making. So bring you recommendations, do insights to action sort of work to make the decision easier to make. The final decision may have to be derived by a human but make it easier to make and then the action can be delivered through process automation. And it's how you bring all that together so that it is a simpler operating environment for the human and the automation and AI tech do the heavy lifting behind the scenes. How far do you think we are away from achieving that in the CI space? Oh, look, I I think a lot have gone a long way in the last five to ten years. I think in the small to medium enterprise sort of product set, we're very well advanced. You know, that is almost becoming commoditized. But then when you get up into what we used to call the middle market, that's where it's a little bit less standard and therefore you fall back on simplifying the operating environment, improving the augmentation of decisions. I'm not sure that the use case will ever be valuable enough to create a master AI that can underwrite all lines, but certainly augmenting you know, the underwriting decision-making, we're finding that to be the best path at the moment. Right. Now, I have the other question for you, which is based on some of the works that you have done, which is like having that experience in deploying the AI, the analytic, and now automation in various parts of the business at Suncorp. And I feel like you are in this very unique position to say, is it about the time in combining the automation and analytic to become the next logical step where it can even further doing all the heavy lifting and also to do for, for the workforce before the human make the final call? Yeah, I absolutely think so. I think this concept of you, you have, I certainly used to think about it, that you have AI to do decision I used to call it decision science, and then you've got AI to do sort of analytics insights. But I think more and more we're blending them together to say it's not this simple, but the analytics insights are actually feeding the decision science and vice versa to to simplify or, or structure the information in order to make the decision. And then the analytics are looking for, you know, where are the outliers, where are the processes that are heading off track that we need intervention on and then the big piece which i think everybody's grappling with is then how do you keep enough governance to to understand the bias that might creep in to whatever you're doing yeah the governance and the bias is certainly a concern it seems to come out from uh, a lot of the business leader that i interview that is probably their number one concern but i have to say automating that whole analytic piece would really make the whole process complete in a way that no longer the models built by the analytic guy is sitting there to be interpreted and uh, executed, right? So I think hopefully that days is not far. I can see a lot of those work has been done. I think more and more people sh- hopefully will be understand how these two things could fit together. 
My final question for you here is then: What would be your final advice for the business leader who are looking to implement more automation in modernizing their organization? I mean, my, my advice is always start, but that's probably a little glib. But you know, I think a lot of people get caught up in this paralysis around decisions and how do we start? And a lot of people I talk to say, "Oh." but we can't get a business case up, it's not expensive to start. And if you do it right and you're happy to embrace a bit of failure, you need to have some appetite for failure amongst your executives, but just start and get it rolling, iterate. As I said, embrace failure and kind of one of my favourite terms is take a bit of a hacker's mindset. This stuff is very, very flexible. We can spin up AI experiments through the data science team under Craig Price You know, they spin up data science experiments very quickly just to test a hypothesis and then go, okay, hypothesis has proven that there's no path there, put it down, do the next one. So, yeah, be a bit brave and just start. I agree. I think that brings us to the final two questions that I always ask my guests. What is your most important first principle? Mine's more of a leadership one, and I think I I said this to you on LinkedIn, is being ex-military, one of my early bosses saw me running to a meeting and stuck his head out the window and said, never run, it panics the troops. And I tell the story quite often. I think as leaders, we need to be realistic, but if you get yourself flustered, everybody who works for you gets flustered. So never run, it panics the troops. That is a good one. I remember that. Um, what is one book that you have read and thought it would have been better for your younger self to have? A couple of years ago, I read a number of behavioural economics books and think that there's a kind of has gone a bit off the boil, but behavioural economics would have been something I would have loved to have got onto back when Thaler was doing his initial work and because I think there's a lot in it. And ironically, when you look at behavioural economics and how it sort of crosses over into artificial intelligence when you talk about how you can predict somebody's behaviour based on the approach and and method of interaction with them. You know, I think there's a really interesting thing in there about how those two combine. Well, that's interesting correlation. I actually have never thought about that. Do you have any particular example that you could elaborate a little bit? That's okay if, if, if maybe for the I don't have any actual examples because it's one of these concepts that lives inside my head and I don't talk about it much because you can understand if you said, hey, I think we should combine artificial intelligence, people would go, could you just stick to your day job? But, I mean, I, I look at the ability to, I'll give, you, I'll give you an example. So when we think about the way we might, use behavioural economics to influence customer behaviour using even some simple AI, just using sentiment analysis to see if we can pick a change in customer behaviour based on what we're doing. And being able to do that at speed, you could almost run the equivalent of website A-B testing with behavioural economics. So that's number one. And number two is the concepts of bias in behavioural economics I think are a good starting point for really driving into bias in artificial intelligence. That sentimental analysis in the real time, I think is a great example. I actually have this crazy idea in my head that what if we could apply the sentimental analysis in the call center 
and in almost in the real real time, it pick up all the signal from the tone, from the language that they use, and then it just displayed for the consultant like green, yellow, red, <laughs> where you are at. I think it, it would already exists. Already exists. I was shown a system when I was visiting one of our our sort of vendor partners, and they've got it takes almost near real time voice analytics and maps the sentiment. It's kind of like the worm sentiment for the customer, sentiment for the consultant on the desktop. I mean, I, I said to them, I, if I was a contact centre agent, it would be so distracting. But even if you look at it, I think the application of you know, artificial intelligence and analytics in near real-time quality assurance and feedback loops in contact centres, in, there's a massive opportunity for that and a number of companies are doing it very, very well. Wow. Okay. So this crazy idea in my head, it could be coming true already. I suppose you are not quite ready to implement it yet. Sounds like it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tim, for sharing some of your experience in this uh, and your view in the analytic AI and uh, also the automation in the insurance industry. I think that was a lot of uh, important takeaway. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jason.